Tonight we have a very special guest called Dave Meserve, called by his parents first and then named. Uh, Dave Meserve, he's a friend of Mike Sayers. He spoke to us recently about the power of imagination. And tonight he's going to continue in our series in Philippians. So please welcome Dave Meserve. Hi. How are you tonight? Is this, is this where I'm supposed to be? I was trying to get used to this idea of being kind of in the round, so I'll, it'll take me a little time to get used to it. Um, I am an old friend of Mike Sayers. We went to seminary together. Uh, we were both working at a church and um, going one day a week, one class at a time, and um, I got out in seven, and he's still trying. God bless him. Um, he's in England right now. I think you probably knew that. I'm a little envious. Um, I wish I could be there rather than here as much as I want to be here. Uh, the only time I've been in England, I got to go for a week, and uh, I heard that Mike went to the Eagle and the Child, which is where C.S. Lewis and uh, J.R. Tolkien and the Inklings hung out. And I, I got to go there one time. Um, actually, across the street, it's called the Lamb and the Flag, which is another pub that the Inklings hung out at, and I'm sure Mike's been there. But I got to go there on the 4th of July. You get the irony of being an American, 4th of July, celebrating in England. So I got to go to an English pub, and while we were there... Um, there was actually several pastors. There was an Irish band there. And the Irish and the English, I suppose, don't get along all the time. So they thought this was hilarious. And so they, they basically kind of manipulated us to get up in the Irish pub and sing the Star Spangled Banner on the 4th of July. So that was one of my favorite memories of all time. And I know Mike will have great, great stories. Um, and he, uh, he has just got such a, he's got such a story because of scum. Um, he is the real deal, and I, I, I just can't wait to hear what it was like for him to be over there. I know they had him speaking about 80 times, which is too bad. Um, I'm going to continue, as uh, Leonor said, um, in Philippians, and I think Mike was up a couple, two weeks ago before he came in, in Philippians 3, and we're going to get there in a minute. But I want to begin with a quote from uh, what's become one of my favorite recent movies. It's called The Brothers Bloom. Anybody ever see this show? There you go. I got a little reaction. Brothers Bloom. It's about brothers named Bloom, hence the title. And uh, they're con men, and they grew up con boys, and they were um, go from foster home to foster home. And what happened is that they kind of figured out how to run a, a con. And you can see this is the theme of the movie. Um, they begin the movie this way, they end the movie, and uh, the older brother, Stephen, figured out the perfect con. The perfect con is one where everyone involved get just the thing they wanted. Now, that's interesting because by the very nature of a con is uh, you are taking something from them. Um, but the way they did it is that they made, they invited this person, this Mark, into a story. And what they found out, the older brother was brilliant at this, is that what people have that they were going to give away wasn't really what they wanted. That what they wanted was something much more What's deeper, maybe even below what they even were aware of. And so, therefore, they could con someone, and that person would get what they want, even if they had to give it away. Right? Ready for my big transition to God and theology? I think God is like the ultimate con man, if you will. And I better explain it, but I will. Um, Because what God does in a benevolent way is he takes from us what we have. He asks for what we have in order to give us exactly what we want. The problem is, is that we don't want to give them what we have, but we're going to talk about that. And often we're not really aware of what we truly want. 
or what we really want, what we desire most of all is, is the wrong thing or something different than he would want. If you believe that we're all created by God and we're all created to want one thing in particular. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, is really clued in on this. Um, before we get there, I want to um, talk a little bit more. And I want to quote from um, John Eldridge in my favorite of his books called The Journey of Desire. And this is what he says when he's just talking about this whole idea of what do you want? He says, we are desire. It is the essence of the human soul, the secret of our existence. Absolutely nothing of human greatness is ever accomplished without it. Not a symphony has been written, a mountain climbed, an injustice fought, or a love sustained apart from desire. Desire fuels our search for the life we prize. And so I believe that. So what do you desire? What do you want? What do you really want? Now, Paul was tied into this because Paul knew what he, he wanted. And by the time we get to chapter 3 of Philippians, uh, is that he begins to just say to his friends, and Philippians is probably his, his, uh, his most uh, kind letter of all the letters that he wrote that we have recorded. They loved him, and he loved them. And it's, after he's, he, it's as he's speaking with his friends that he gets to the point, he says, let me just, I just got to tell you what I want. It's not what, this is what you should do or you should want. He's done some of that. But this is what he says, and this is our key verse tonight. He says, I want to know Christ. This is what Paul wants. And he goes on to say, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, become like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. So this is what Paul wants. He wants to know Christ. Now, what this is not saying is that what Paul wants is to meet Christ. He's already done that. If you're familiar with his dramatic conversion on the Damascus Road, he, he knows Christ. I mean, this is in a sense he already knows Christ, but his deepest desire is to really know Christ. Now, in my culture that I've grown up in in the church is that we talk about knowing Christ personally. That's kind of the language we will use. A lot of you are familiar with that. Um, a lot of us think about it in terms of a conversion event where I met Christ. And if someone say, do you know Jesus? I would say, well, yeah. I know Jesus because of, and I can kind of go back to a, a time in my life. And that's all true. But it was true for Paul. On the Damascus Road, he met Christ. I mean, in ways that probably none of us have. Christ appears to him, um, scolds him a little bit, but invites him into a relationship. There was no doubt there. And yet here we are in Philippians, likely the last letter or one of the last letters he wrote. He's an older man now. He's actually in prison in Rome when he writes this met Christ decades ago, and as an older man, he's still saying, you know what I really want in life, what I desire, my baseline desire? I want to know Christ. I want to know him. I think this idea is, is somewhat like the idea behind marriage. Um, my favorite marriage book is a book called The Mystery of Marriage by Mike Mason, which is full of alliteration. And when I first read this in the early 90s, um, I, I just thought, if I ever get to do a wedding... I want to do something out of this book. I was so taken by it. It's not practical at all. So, uh, But it's just one of those philosophical books about marriage. Mike Mason was on his way to becoming a monk, which is kind of the opposite of marriage. And, uh, and yet he meets this girl. And so they fall in love and he decides to get married. And he talks about the vows. And he wrote this chapter and he says, the vows of marriage 
aren't simply this event that you do on this particular day and you keep looking back and remembering the anniversary of that day. Yes, I took the vow. He says, no. He says, the vows of marriage are so wild and mysterious is that you spend the rest of your life trying to discover what it means to be faithful to this vow. And then he says, when you marry someone, that vow relationship, that covenant relationship becomes the centerpiece for kind of all your other relationships. And if, if, if you're married or, you know, you've all been to a wedding and often at a wedding they'll, they'll quote the Genesis passage, for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and join himself to his wife. You know, the leave and cleave idea. But when you get married, it changes your relationship with your parents. At least it's supposed to. Problems happen when it doesn't, uh, which unfortunately happens all the time. But he says, when you get married, that relationship becomes the centerpiece and everything else kind of flows around it. And so Paul says, when I want to know Christ, it's like that kind of relationship. Knowing Christ is so intense for Paul that everything kind of revolves around it. And he says, that is my core desire. It's like having a, a river where the, the whole river is moving in line with Christ. Now, there's tributaries. There's other things we want in life. But this is basically what what we want. He's going to go on. He's going to qualify this idea of knowing Christ. Because I imagine in your mind, so what does it mean to know Christ? Well, you meet him. You have a personal relationship. What does that mean? Well, he's going to qualify it in two primary ways. And the first is this. I want to know him. I want to know the power of the resurrection. And I want to know, I want to participate in his sufferings to become like him in his death. And what Mike wanted me to talk about mostly was this idea of the sufferings that Paul is referring to here. And I want to talk about two kinds of suffering. Because if you want to know Christ, it is through this path of suffering and resurrection. Now, by definition, resurrection means that there's already been a death, right? So the first way I want us to think about this relationship between suffering and power is is what Paul talks about is the loss of all things. So this is earlier in the passage that I think Mike talked about a couple weeks ago. He says, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So he describes that other translations talk about I have suffered loss in order that I may gain Christ. And this is where Christ is the con man. He's going to ask you to suffer the loss of things in order to gain him, to get what you really want, which is to know Christ. Now, in this passage that Mike talked about is Paul talks about what he had to lose, so to speak. And uh, Paul grew up and went to really the finest universities uh, in the land. And he trained, he decided to become a rabbi, and he trained under perhaps the the, well, the best-known rabbi of the day. <clears throat> and in his training and his studies, he excelled all of his peers. He was without equal in his performance, in his achievement, and even in his own piety. I mean, he was living the Jewish dream, I guess, of, of the first century. And so when Christ says you must, or when Paul says, I suffer the loss, and he goes on to say, I've done all these things and I count them like rubbish or garbage, is that Paul had to lay aside all of those achievements that he's done. It wasn't that they didn't happen. 
But he had to understand that that was not what he most desired in life. That dream, he had had to become shattered, and that's a loss. Well, we don't know exactly what happened to Paul right after his conversion. We know he went to Arabia, and he spent a number of years kind of out of the limelight. When you read the book of Acts, it kind of, it's somewhat seamless. We just know that he went away, and then he's back all of a sudden. But I bet it was during that time that he understood what it meant to suffer loss, that he had to look at his life, the direction he was headed, his core desires, that channel of energy, that river, and he was... It needed to be redirected toward Christ. Even Jesus, I think, had a level of this. In chapter 2 in Philippians, it describes Jesus of emptying himself, becoming a servant, even though he was really the master of the universe. Now, that's kind of a loss, that sense of giving up what we cling on to. But we all have to do this. Every one of us has things. And I guess the question would be this. For each of us, where do we try to find life apart from Christ. And we all have our own unique answer to that. Um, I I got married pretty young, 23, and uh, we first got married, we ran into some struggles. Uh, My wife stopped sleeping, which is a big deal for her (laughs) and for me. I have insomnia once a year, and I whine like a baby. Uh, But my wife has acute insomnia still. And so some things were going on inside of her that caused her not to sleep, and we didn't know what they really what they were. Well, we go to this conference, our first year of marriage, and she, um, the speaker at this conference, it was a Christian conference, was a guy named Billy Grammer, and he used to get confused all the time as Billy Graham's son. He finally just decided to tell people, yeah, that's my dad, but it wasn't, but he was this fascinating guy, played the harmonica. We just really liked him, and he just talked, and the way he talked about the Christian life, Sherry especially just felt drawn to him. And he said, if any of you want to meet with me, I'm hanging around. Just come talk to me during the retreat. And she went to talk to him. And in her words, she says, he read my mail. It was like he had understood me in ways no one had ever understood me before. Well, he was in the air. And he says, Sherry, why don't you just come by and see me once in a while? And so she would go see him once in a while. Now, now Sherry is one of those responsible child. You know, she's a straight-A student. She just always tried to do the right thing. And... And there's nothing wrong with that. But it became, for her, almost an obsession to have to do the right thing or or your whole universe is out of whack. And that's not the gospel. And that's a hard way to live. And so my wife, in that early age, was much braver than I was because, because I wasn't prepared to kind of look at my own obsessions. And she was ready. And so she met with Billy. And what they talked about was, was how you suffer the loss of having to do everything right, of being perfection. And she would meet with him. And then this one time she, she came in and she just said, it's just so hard. I just default into this. And then he gave her the line, which Sherry and I have repeated for 25 years. And the line was this, when she's talking about this idea of dying to self. And he looked at her and Billy said to Sherry, Sherry, death feels like death. <laughs> Think about it. Death feels like death. As if it's supposed to feel good to suffer the loss, to die to yourself. And that was really good for her to hear. And it helped energize her. And and she really became on a much mature track than I was. It took me years later. Because my obsession is not perfectionism. My obsession is people-pleasing. And my whole life, and unfortunately my 12-year-old boy is the same way, is that... If I feel like I'm not pleasing someone that I want to please, 
My universe is out of whack. I mean, it's like an addiction. Um, now, addictions, we all have them. Um, some have those kind of classic substance addictions. And those kinds of addictions um, at least have a, a, a kind of a, a component to it that you can kind of get your hands around. But this idea of being a people pleaser is very difficult to kind of get around. And it took me years uh, and put my wife in positions where rather than stand up for my wife at times, um, I, I wouldn't. There's this one time we were in graduate school, and um, Sherry, we moved here in Colorado to go to, CS, to CCU, and we were in graduate school for counseling. And, and at the very end of our time, Sherry was leading a lab with some of the wives whose husbands were part of the program. And, um, and this one time we were uh, at home, and there was um, a woman that had a bad experience in this group that was co-led by my wife and our friend Mary. And Mary uh, and, and Sherry led this group, and this woman went home in tears one time. And so the, the, the husband called my wife and, and just tore into her. And, and I'm, listening, uh, I'm listening to her on the phone, and I'm standing there. Her husband, I've been there just for a couple of years. We'd been married just a couple of years. And, and, and I didn't know what to do. Now, when you're a people pleaser and you avoid conflict, it's a really hard place to be when it's something like this. And I remember right when she got the phone call and it was started up, our friend Mary, her co-worker came in, and her husband Jim, they came in. And eventually Jim walks over, takes the phone from Sherry, and kind of calms this guy down and says, this is not the way you're going to talk to my friend, and, and soothed it. And I just felt so ashamed at that point. Because it was like an addiction or an obsession to say, I have to avoid those kinds of things because I don't know what will happen if I get in there. That's the kind of thing that I need to crucify. That's part of my flesh. And so when I need to suffer the loss of all things, that's the peace for me. And what's the peace for you? For Paul, it was on this fast track of being self-righteous. And he had to kill it in order to experience the, the, um, uh, the blessing of God. Now, here's how Mother Teresa puts it, and this is a good way for me to think about it. It is only by frequent deaths of ourselves and our self-centered desires that we can come to live more fully. So part of the suffering that Paul is talking about is the suffering that comes by engaging our own life, our own obsessions, our own ways that we say, I will find life apart from God. And we need to frequently kill that in order to what? Have the power of a resurrected life, to live more fully for God. And that's the way Teresa puts it. So the first suffering is this very personal suffering of suffering the loss of all things. The second suffering is different. And, and, and uh, let's go to the next slide, Dave. So this other relationship between suffering and power is when you're mistreated while doing good. Now, we're going to come more to that idea, but I want to tell you a little of the origin story of the church in Philippi. Now, my little theory is, is that every church has a DNA that gets um, kind of established, almost like that, that infant seed when the church is birthed. Scum is, is one of those churches, and I've known Mike since before Scum you know, was a twinkle in his eye, and... Um, and I've read Pure Scum, of course. But Scum has this beautiful story. And what was going on in the very beginning is still going on now. And it was kind of seed form, and it's being birthed. 
And um, the story, the origin story of the Philippian church is a story of suffering. Not the only thing about it. And you read about this in Acts 16. And and Paul um, was doing his missionary work. And he gets a vision that says, hey, come over to us in Macedonia, which is where Philippi was. And so he goes there. And the first thing he does on the Sabbath is he finds where people are praying. And he goes down by this river. And like in many churches, it was just women that were there. And he goes down to the women who are praying and he's engaging them. And this one woman in particular, she was kind of a natural leader named Lydia. And she engaged with Paul and, and, and comes to become a follower of Jesus. And so there's something about the DNA of this church that women were going to play a, a significant role. Now, he would go down there every Sabbath and every time they would gather to prayer. And one of the things that happened was this teenage girl would follow them and, and just kind of in this obnoxious way. These are the prophets of God. These are the prophets of God. And Paul and his buddy Silas got kind of tired of it. I mean, it wasn't like it wasn't true, but it's just annoying. Now, what was going on with this girl was that she was really enslaved. She was enslaved to men who were taking advantage of her gift of fortune telling to make money. She was also enslaved to a spirit that was allowing her the ability to have this kind of divination. And so she would do this. And finally, Paul turned around and cast this demon out of her just out of annoyance, really. And then when that happens, the guys realize that they lost their their uh, the woman that was making the money. And so they dragged Paul and Silas before the authorities. And they said, these guys are preaching this crazy stuff. They're talking about gods that are contrary to the Roman gods. And they had them beaten with rods and flogged. And then the magistrate came and threw them in prison, chained them up. That's how the church began. Now, while they're in there, they felt like they were participating in the sufferings of Christ. And they're singing hymns. I mean, what else do you do in prison, I guess? They're singing these hymns while they're in change. And then at midnight, an earthquake comes and it, and it opens the doors where they could have just run out and their chains fall off. The jailer wakes up when this happens, thinks everyone's gone and knows he's going to not only lose his job, but his life. And he begins to take a sword. He was going to kill himself. And Paul says, wait, don't do that. We're here. And he sheaths his sword and he talks to Paul and said, I, I don't understand. And so Paul, of course, leads this jailer to Christ. So this is the DNA of the church. There's going to be women. I think they're going to have a prison ministry based on this story. But there's this suffering piece that happens because of the gospel. And that continues on today. And so when he writes to the Philippians, he's saying, you guys are suffering. You're suffering because you're doing good stuff. You're talking about Jesus. You're doing good in the community. And sometimes you're being mistreated for doing good. When you're in that kind of situation, You are participating in the sufferings of Christ. You want to know Christ. You participate in these kinds of sufferings, sufferings for doing good. Let me go to the next slide. Read that. We got it a little small. One of my heroes is a man named Oscar Romero. Anybody know Oscar Romero? You will love him when I tell you about him. Oscar Romero was a Catholic priest. And he is from El Salvador. He grew up there, was going to be a carpenter, and then he decided that uh, he'd go into the priesthood. And so he goes to Rome and he goes to the priesthood. He was a fantastic scholar, very bright guy, kind of quiet, loved the church. 
when the war broke out in the 40s, he ends up back in El Salvador and he begins to just do the work of the priest. And he was preaching his homilies. He was doing the Eucharist and Mass and visiting people. He was doing all that work. And, uh, but he was really a church guy. When Vatican II came, which changed a lot of things, uh, not everyone liked it. Like Mel Gibson doesn't like it. And neither did Oscar Romero. And so Oscar Romero in the 60s was, he was one of those, I just like the church the way it is. Now what was going on in El Salvador at that time was that almost all the land was owned by just a handful of families. And this handful of families didn't want anyone else in on this. And they began to oppress anyone that would try to challenge that. So you had the masses of people, and this oppression was mounting. The military really was the military that was uh, defending the rights of the wealthy land owners. Now, one of the questions was, what would happen with the church? And uh, the church began to become a thorn in the side of the wealthy landowners. And it became more and more, and so there was some persecution against the church. There was a famous slogan you would see once in a while, be a patriot, kill a priest. Now, the bishop died during all of this struggle, and so the Catholic Church says, well, who can we have to be the bishop here? We need someone that's not going to cause trouble, so they thought Oscar Romero. He's this brilliant guy. He's scholarly. He loves the church. He's just old school. He's going to go in there and he's going to do the work and he's not going to become political. That's exactly the way he started in 1975. But he begins to meet people. He met a younger priest, Father Grande. Father Grande was kind of a radical. And he says, how can we sit here when these people are being oppressed? And he began to challenge that. And one day, Father Grande and a young man were walking to Mass and they get gunned down. And that was a turning point for Oscar Romero. And he knew he could no longer just play it safe. So he left his very nice house and he went to live in a cancer ward at a hospital where a lot of people were coming in. And at Mass, what he would do, every Mass, he would read the list of the names of people who had been murdered or were missing and probably murdered. And he would go on the radio and read these names. And he began to speak out publicly against this oppression. Well, of course, this caused all kinds of scandal. But he, he had to do that. Eventually, what happened in 1977, he'd only been there three years. On March 24th, he was delivering Mass, and an assassin sneaks in. And during the blessing of the elements, he's shot right in the forehead and dies. And one of the really beautiful and sad ironies was the text that night, or that day at Mass, was from the Gospels where it says, unless a seed of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will bear no fruit. And that reform continued kind of in the spirit of Oscar Romero. Well, he, he has written beautiful things. And this is a book called the, the Violence of Love, and it's based on this particular writing. And if you get this book or if you read these things, it's actually prose, but it's, it's set up in poetry style. It's just beautiful. So let me read this for you. We have never preached violence except the violence of love, which left Christ nailed to a cross. The violence that we must each do to ourselves to overcome our selfishness and such cruel inequalities among us. The violence we preach is not the violence of the sword, the violence of hatred. It is the violence of love, of brotherhood, the violence that wills to beat weapons into sickles for work, the violence of love. So in the middle there, he says, 
He says, the violence we must do, and he's using very obviously strong language to make a point. The violence we must do, first, he says, we do it to ourselves. We suffer the loss of all things, and that's a suffering that we can take on to get rid of our selfishness and our obsessions and those things that take us away from the heart of God. But it's also um, the cruel inequalities among us is that we, we join in on the suffering of the poor and God's people. And I know Scum is a church that does just that. And when you do it, when you act in this way, this is where the fellowship comes from when you join together for this kind of good. Um, and that's how you know Christ. There really is no knowing Christ in, in the kind of way Paul's talking about without this sense of suffering on behalf of others. That's where the power comes from. Now, Paul's not the only one to write about this. It's, this is the way Peter puts it. He says, who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Now, let me stop there. Now, that makes sense. If you're going about doing good and taking care of the poor and the people that need it and feeding and clothing and, and your neighbors that need help, who's going to harm you? I mean, who wouldn't want that? Well, there are people that don't want that. There is a world spirit that doesn't always see that kindly. When Paul healed this teenage girl from her um, slavery and freed her, there was an economic uh, side to that that got him in trouble. So sometimes you're going to be eager to do good. Um, it says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, then he says you're blessed. And he goes on to talk about here that, that famous line where um, he says if, um, uh, i got to get to it. Oh, yeah, be prepared to answer anyone that asks you about your faith and you answer with gentleness and reverence. And if you've been in the church, you might recognize that one. We use it a lot to say this. You always be prepared to talk to people about Jesus. What they miss is the context about suffering. Why would someone ask you about your faith in Jesus? They will ask you, when they see you suffer well, when you are being mistreated for doing good, and instead of retaliating to mistreatment, you bless, that is why people are going to want to know your God. And that's how we get to know Jesus. This whole context is when he's talking about Jesus going to the cross and not retaliating. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In the Bible, there, there are people say there's 600 promises. I don't know what it is. You would probably know, Brad. Lots of promises. I think there's only a handful of really core promises in the Bible that are really promises. And the one that I think that, I, that we see over and over again that may be the most, well, for me, most important true promise of the Bible is this. Jesus puts it this succinctly in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, if you seek, you will find. And he is in a long tradition of faith writing that talks about that. In the Proverbs, it's really talking about seeking wisdom. And it's really about seeking God. It says if you seek her as silver, if you search for her as for hidden treasure, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. 
Jeremiah says, you will find me when you seek me, if you seek me with all your heart. And Jesus in that line says, seek me. That's what I'm asking you to do. It really is about our desires. If you want Christ, he will lead you toward that path of knowing him. That's the promise. And it is that journey, which, yes, does include this sense of suffering. But with the suffering comes this new life, this power of the resurrection. I mean, that's the hope of the gospel. Last slide. And what Paul goes on to say when he's talking about knowing Christ, he says, not that I've already obtained all of this. So he's talking about as an old man, I'm still looking forward. He says, I haven't arrived at my goal. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind me, straining toward what is ahead, I press on to the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And the prize is Jesus himself. So I'm going to pray for us that we might know Christ and want to know Christ. Jesus, I pray that um, we would be like Paul and we would move more and more toward that place. But what we really want in life, what we desire, what gets us up in the morning is to know you. Not in simply an academic way or in a cursory way, but in this depth of relationship where everything else revolves around it. And Father, we don't need to look for suffering. But if there's suffering that must happen, to kill off our own obsessions and selfishness, then may it come to us. And if there's suffering that must happen because we align ourselves with things that are good, then may it happen to us so that we may experience the power of resurrection and that we may experience you. You really are the goal for which we are all headed. You are the desire that we were created for. And as Pascal said, our hearts will always be restless until they rest in you. Thank you for this time. Please be with each of us as we go about our weeks. Take care of us. Watch over us. Lead us into knowledge of you. For the sake of Christ. Amen.